Welcome back to We CRZ, a podcast housed in a conservative synagogue. On today's episode, we're bringing you something special. You'll hear speeches from our latest This American Shabbat. This American Shabbat is a gem of our community and something we are quite proud of. It was an idea that we came up with on our own, out of thin air. Well, perhaps with a little help from our friends at WBEZ. So Ira Glass, if, if you're listening, and let's be honest, I know you are, I'm sorry. I'm a huge fan of This American Life, and I've wanted to have a program that gets to the heart of storytelling in the honest and in-depth way that that program does. It's sophisticated without being pretentious. It's balanced and heartfelt. This American Life can take any complex issue and break it down to its core, yet they also can take some of the most basic human conditions or stories and address their inner nuances and contradictions that we so often miss in our everyday lives. My thought was, we need to do that with Torah. There are Torah portions that seem distant and irrelevant to our modern lives, so we disregard them. But there are also stories that we think we know so well, feeling that all of the interpretive juices have been sucked out, and thus there is nothing new we or anyone else can add. And that is where we get this program. Here at Rodfet Zedek, our pews and Shabbat dinner tables are filled with professors, scholars, and thoughtful thinkers. It would be a Shanda a travesty, not to turn the microphone over to these amazing people. But what I've realized is that you do not need to be a professor at the University of Chicago to have an earth-shattering insight into our sacred texts. Like This American Life, you need to bring heart and humility to the task, and the result will be resonant and meaningful. We now have had 17 members of our community parse the words of the Torah in their lives to make six different portions truly memorable while infusing them with new life. We've had law professors and union organizers. We've had doctors and computer scientists. We've had teachers and writers, young and old, people of all backgrounds. Or simply put, we've had our community. And we will continue to have many more. So how do we do it? I invite two or three community members to study the Torah portion, and we do this as a group two or three times. And then on Shabbat morning, they offer their take. We will start uploading these talks to all of you, starting with our most recent one from a few weeks ago, when we heard the story of Noah, the Great Flood, and the Tower of Babel. Today, on this American Shabbat, we have the Torah portion of Noah, Parashat Noah in three acts. Act 1, just the two of us in this old ark. Act 2, head, shoulders, lips, and tongues. Act 3, Dad, you're not wearing any pants. In Act 1, Lorenzo Fernando Davis brings to light a saying we have all said. You all know it. Is he nice? Well, he's nice to me. We have all had that friend whose influence our parents are wary of, but what happens when that friend, who you've always walked with and had a beautiful friendship with, turns out to have, well, a violent and spiteful side? No, 
So I'm going to get right into it. What I want to present today is the idea that within Parashat Noah is an alternative dramatic interpretation. It features the character of God as portrayed in the Torah and his friend Noah. Like any good drama, there is a central conflict. And the conflict here is that God recognizes that their current relationship with humanity is not sustainable, and that significant changes need to happen before the granting of Torah at Sinai. At this point, the Torah narrative, and through the end of this parasha, we see God as the creator of the universe, Elohei Adam Vechava, and having what I interpret to be emotionally intimate relationships with individuals. Enosh is one example, and we'll see that Noah is another. For this, for this interpretation in particular, I see God as recognizing the need to create and maintain an emotional distance from their creation. And how do you do this? If you're human and want to create some distance between yourself and others, you can stop calling, or as we'll see later in the parasha, you can curse them and their progeny. But if you're God, you have other options, like destroying the earth with water from below and above, and we will see that this is exactly what happens. Now, imagine for a moment that you're Noah. You've been fairly buddy-buddy with God, and you've conversed directly with God. You've walked with God, and God has given you a fairly privileged position relative to the remainder of humanity. And now you are in a cold, damp boat being tossed to and fro. The design your best friend gave you is a bit odd, but right now that is the least of your problems. A bit more seriously, imagine you're Noah and all that you've seen to this point from your best friend is their kindness, their familiarity, and a particular sort of love. And that all of the stories that you've heard about God to this point have been fairly demure. But now you're in this ark being swept by waves and being buffeted by water coming from below and above. The world is coming apart as a result of God's rage and you're at the seam what is literally the liminal space dividing the great waters from the heavens. And that seam is coming apart, and with it, your, Noah's prior relationship with God. I just cannot imagine their anti- and post-Diluvian relationships being comparable in the slightest. But was it effective? Was flooding the earth in a righteous rage effective? Stepping back in time, let's recall the Garden of Eden and suppose that it represents a closeness with God that is fresh and untouched. As we read last week, Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden and angels, along with a flaming sword, were set to bar entry. Like the angels and that flaming sword, the flood marks yet another milestone in the evolving relationship between humanity and God. Along with the physical aspect with the earth marred and scarred by a destructive flood, there is also the emotional effect. Noah was spared physical destruction, but was not spared emotional harm. He came out of the ark less emotionally whole than when he entered. He maintained his respect and love of God, but I assert that the friendliness and intimacy that characterized the earlier relationship is now gone. And it is obvious. Noah has not only lost a dear friend, but he has been subject to that friend's wanton and arguably capricious destruction by water that makes Noah call into question that earlier relationship. In consolation, God makes a covenant with Noah, but part of that covenant being that God will never subject Noah nor his progeny to that sort of watery rage again. But the damage had been done. After facing embarrassment at the hand of his son Ham, Noah lashes out and curses Ham and his progeny, perhaps echoing the examples of righteous rage and alienation put forth by God. By replicating the alienation between himself and God onto the relationships between himself and his sons, and also the relationship between his sons and their progeny, the emotional harm caused by the flood was no longer contained in Noah. 
that emotional harm and alienation of various types was let out of its figurative ark in Noah and shared with humanity, who must now bear and alleviate that burden. Just like the flaming sword guarding Eden, and like the physical destruction done by the flood, there is no undoing this. There is no going back. The relationship between God and humanity must keep moving forward. The God of creation is continuing their transition into becoming the God of Israel at Sinai, and a portion of humanity is continuing its transition into becoming a people ready to receive that Torah at Sinai. They will receive the Torah at Sinai and with it instructions on how to minimize the emotional distance between humanity and the divine, how to bring God and holiness closer by a multitude of increments. In Act 2, we are reminded of that great line from John Bender in the John Hughes classic, The Breakfast Club. Speak for you? I don't even know your language. How do we communicate with God? Is there a language God speaks? And if so, which one? What language do we or should we be speaking to each other? In this second act, Diane Brentari will illuminate these questions for all of us. The Tower of Babel is one of the few places in the Torah where the idea of language takes center stage, which interests me a great deal as a professor of linguistics. In fact, I would suggest that just as many major themes in the Tanakh are introduced in Breshit, the notion of language in the story of the Jewish people may be given its shape as a major biblical theme, at least in part, in Parsha Noach. My remarks focus, first of all, on the origin and use of the two Hebrew roots for language in this Torah portion, Lashon, Lamed Shin Nun, which literally means tongue, and Sefa, Sin Pei He, which literally means lips. The use of these two roots is not haphazard, but rather offers us a way to better understand the difference between our communicative practices with God and those we use with other people. Both Lashon and Sefa appear for the first time here in Parsha Noach. Lashon is used for our communication with God, which starts out being taken for granted, but which becomes increasingly formalized throughout the Torah when God talks to us. This is coupled by the idea of communication with no misunderstanding. In contrast, Sefa aligns with the practices of everyday communication among human beings, coupled with confusion and misunderstanding. Lashon is the divine, and Sefa is the human. Lashon, as the root for language, is used in the first part of today's parasha, prior to the Tower of Babel. Lashon is used in Genesis 10, in the description of Noah's three sons and their offspring, once for each son, by their clans, within their nations, each with its own language. So in chapter 10, even as the sons establish their clans, we can understand that under the interpretation here, these different languages did not cause confusion or misunderstanding, but rather may simply have been different dialects of a common language. But on a deeper level, 
Lashon could represent the almost crystalline way that God has communicated with his people since Breshit. I would suggest that Lashon means that before the Tower of Babel, God's manner of communicating with us was taken for granted to be unproblematic, with mutual understanding between interlocutors. For example, when talking with Noah, God communicates his wishes and Noah simply understands. The assumption of unequivocal command didn't work so well, however, if it ended with God wiping the earth clean of all human beings. During the events starting at the end of Breshit and through Noah, however, we get the sense that God is starting to rethink his mode of communicating with us and create more formality, more distance between him and us. From here onwards, there is a shift from easy, natural, transparent communication from God to a more codified and official way of doing so. The use of Sefa starts in Genesis 11. Only during and after the Tower of Babel section of the parasha, there are four separate uses. In Genesis 11.1, now the whole world had one language. In Genesis 11.6, the Lord said, if is one people speaking the same language, this is how they have begun to act. Genesis 11.7, come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other's speech. And finally, Genesis 11.9. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. By introducing Sefa, we now have a different term to use when referring to language, and a split in meaning from Lashon. And I would suggest that Sefa refers to that non-ideal relationship between two people as speaker and hearer, where confusion and misunderstanding is fairly common. Sefa is used in our parasha when language was diversified to the point of confusion among peoples. The two roots, Lashon and Sefa, are used fairly rarely in the Torah to mean language, but despite the seemingly disparate ways in which Lashon and Sefa are used, the one thing linguistics teaches us is to look at the word in its discursive context. These two roots are used more frequently in the other two books of the Tanakh, in Nevi'im and Ketuvim. To take just one example, Lashon and Sefa are contrasted in the same way as I'm suggesting here, clarity versus confusion, in Isaiah, where Lashon is used for the breath of God in Isaiah 11.15, gathering all of the nations and tongues, Isaiah 66.11, while Sefa is used once again to talk about confusion in creating language, unintelligible speech, Isaiah 28.11, and garbled tongue. Isaiah 33.19. I would extend the meaning of Sefa to the language used in everyday life. Giving directions, asking advice, telling a story or joke, that is, all of the ways that language is used in the domain of the human. So here's a way to reflect on these two different Hebrew roots in thinking about communication in the Torah. Lashon captures the perfect, transparent communication between God and us that we all aspire to, but which gets increasingly worked out in a more conscious and formal way, starting in Noah. Sefa characterizes our communication with each other, which is prone to misunderstanding and is inherently imperfect. Most interpretations of the diversification of language see it as a punishment, but as a linguist, 
I find it really hard to see it that way. The diversification of language is one of the most beautiful means of cultural expression that we have. Every language is fascinating, each in its own way. Most people have access to a native language from birth, and languages are entirely as free as the air. Rich and poor alike have equal access to a native language, except in exceptional circumstances. So an alternative to a punishment interpretation might be this. We become closer to God by overcoming sin, and by analogy, we become closer to our neighbor by overcoming misunderstanding. There's a few mentioned in several interpretations of the Talmud and emphasized by Maimonides that sin can be understood as an opportunity for improvement. Tractate Berachot 34b of the Talmud ascribes a higher level of goodness to the penitent than to the righteous person. There's more merit in overcoming sin than in never having sinned. Making mistakes gives us an opportunity to repair them. Perhaps this relationship can be analogized to the confusion produced at the Tower of Babel, just as being an opportunity for interpersonal clarification and eventual misunderstanding. So sin is to personal improvement, as confusion is to understanding. The confusion is reparable, just as our behavior is reparable. And by investing in the work of overcoming sin or misunderstanding, the result becomes more worthy in the eyes of God. How do the implications of the Tower of Babel affect us each and every day? It's just a fact that when we talk, we also communicate information about who we are as individuals, perhaps as much as about the content of the message itself. Even if my interlocutor and I are talking about the same topic, my accent or word choices, among other things, identify where I come from, my gender, my age, and my social status. So even the small differences in the way we talk can also be a source of division, misunderstanding, or misjudgment, unless we work hard to make it otherwise. I study the sign languages of the deaf communities of the world, and on occasion I've been with deaf people when they make their first impressions on typical speakers, let's say, of English. Speakers can respond negatively to a person whose voice is a little off, or who has a speech impediment, or even someone who doesn't speak at all but uses a sign language. It takes effort to suspend judgments about how creative or intelligent a person is, leave aside the person's tone of voice, their cadence, their manner of speaking, and truly listen to what is being said across spoken and sign languages, or even across dialects. Perhaps this is one of the ways that we can welcome the foreigner. I recently heard the We CRZ podcasts, and the first one had contributions by three prominent members of Rodbet Zedek including Ed Homburg. He expressed the view that one of the reasons we are doing so well as a synagogue is because we see the need to embrace and respect the diversity among us. He applauded the efforts that we are making to dispel confusions among ourselves as we move towards the future. I see this too as a positive consequence of putting the lesson of the Tower of Babel into action, and I'm grateful to be a part of these efforts and of this wonderful community here at Rothve. I hope to apply these principles to my everyday life. In conclusion, I want to thank Lorenzo, Steve, and my husband Arnold Davidson, and especially Rabbi Minkus, for helping with my remarks, for this enriching experience, and for allowing me to share these thoughts with you today. 
mutual understanding is possible. I know that I was right. I know that I was right. I know that I was right. And I know and I know that I was in Act 3, Stephen Lovey will review and uncover the forthcoming memoir by Noah the Righteous. What goes on in the head of someone who walked with God when everyone else drowned? How would we tell that story? Well, we do not need to worry, because we're going to hear from Noah himself. Okay, thank you, Rabbi Minkus, for inviting me to do this presentation, and I'm delighted to be part of the third iteration, the third year of this uh, this American Shabbat programs. Thanks also to Diane and to Lorenzo, who were my marvelous uh, co-interpreters of the Parashat Noach, and to everybody who presented before me. You guys have been an outstanding uh, a model, and you've set a high bar. I feel honored and challenged, intimidated, and uh, rather exhilarated to be here. Every time I read the story of Noah, I'm struck by two things. One is that he is entirely silent for 99 per 95% of his presence in this uh, parsha. Uh, the Torah's authors, editors, and compilers, they put no words in Noah's mouth until the very end of the story when he unleashes a, what I would call, vicious temper tantrum on his younger son, Ham. God does a lot of talking in this parasha, as does the narrator, the anonymous narrator, but Noah just acts out his role as God's agent in saving a fragment of God's creation from deliberate, calculated mass destruction. So it's, uh, it's an interesting question why the silence, and then why the explosive cursing at the end. Whenever I come across a character who plays a pivotal role in a narrative but doesn't speak, I go looking for the words I think are missing from the page. I ask myself, what can I learn from the unspoken parts of this narrative? In this case, from the Torah's portrayal of Noah, who seems so bland in being so dutiful and righteous. Many of my questions about this parasha were uncovered when I discovered a, a long-lost midrash written by Noah himself about 150 years after the flood, when he was 750 years old and still had all his marbles. In this midrash, Noah gives us an intimate an unfiltered account of his experience during the flood years in his own voice, including some painful memories of those years. I, of course, wrote this midrash, but that's what midrashim are all about. They are uh, 
stories we tell about that parallel stories we don't quite understand, and while they don't explain the story we don't understand, they create a parallel story, and the interchange between the two stories can often uh, is our contribution, in this case my contribution, to the discussion about uh, uh, Noah. So here goes. This is what Noah wrote uh, at the age of 750. I was always the kind of guy who does what he's told. God called me a tzaddik, a righteous man, but I really had no interest or, or inclination in living the wild and crazy lives of my contemporaries. I just was a pretty shy guy, and I lived the straight and narrow according to my own understanding of it. And when God talked to me about something big going to happen and told me to follow his plans down to the fraction of a cubit, I didn't question a thing. I do have to say there's a reason for that. There was something about God's voice. It came from no particular place or source that I could see, and it didn't really register on my eardrums, although it certainly registered, and it spoke with such laser authority that I never really questioned anything. I just did the job, and I really had no idea how to talk back if I had even thought about talking back. At that time in my life, I already had three sons whom I loved very much. The two older ones are a lot like me, fairly quiet fellows, and they take orders and are dutiful. But the youngest name, Ham, has always been a thorn in my side. He, I won't even say a possibly a clove in my side, he always questioned and challenged me. He never outgrew that quality of toddlers who ask why about everything. He kept it up throughout his life. And when he was around, I always felt like I was being watched. And as he grew older, it seemed like I was being watched by someone who didn't quite believe in my mission or any of the explanations I might have given about what we were doing and why. So back to the ARC job. The ARC was a huge construction management project. I had to source all the materials. I had to get labor in addition to my sons and daughters-in-law and my wife and myself. And boy, we needed a lot of help to build that thing. So a lot of my neighbors were involved. I did all of the design negotiations with the master architect, basically the master architect told me exactly what to do. I had to keep to a very strict timeline. I had to deal with public relations also, and public relations was a nightmare. My family and I were all laughingstocks of the community. And then I had to produce this massive animal roundup, keep them outside the ark until it was time, feeding them and cleaning them, and then moving them into the ark, and feeding them and cleaning them throughout that experience, truly, sometimes it just seemed overwhelming. In those months, Ham did his share of the work, but there was something about his 
posture toward me, his the way he his stance mentally toward me. He always seemed to stand to the side and say things to me that uh, questioned what was going on. Like, how do you know it's going to rain? How come we're doing this, Dad? What makes us the family to build this thing? What makes us the family to save? Aren't all these people in our town going to die? And their animals and their fields are going to be flooded. Is that okay with you? Do you really want to be part of it? Have you really talked to God about this? Could this all be a joke or a trick, a test? And finally, are you sure this God is the real thing and he actually wants you to do this thing? He would say these things to me with his eyes and often with his voice. And sure, lots of nights I'd stand in the middle of the construction site with my head down, feeling like I was drowning in a sea of responsibility. But I never could take his doubts inside of myself. I never argued or complained. After all, why would you ever ask God why? And yet I could feel the eyes of Ham on me all the time, looking to me for answers. I remember when we finished loading the ark and God sealed us up inside. Our neighbors were standing around jeering at us. They thought we were some crazy doomsday cult. And Ham said to me, Dad, did you ever beg this God to let you build a bigger ark so you could take more people? Did you ever ask him to change his mind? Couldn't he figure out how to make things better without killing everybody? Did you ever say to God, God, this is a terrible idea? I remember a couple of days later when the water started to rise and the ark was teetering back and forth in the shallow water just beginning to float. We could hear our neighbors pounding on the sides of the ark, begging us to let them in. Some tried to push their children and pets through the air vents. But, of course, God had sealed us inside. Ham just looked at me with that penetrating look of his. Later, the sound of the wind and the waves and the thunder replaced the screams. Sure, I did a really good job of managing the whole ark operations, doing exactly what God told me to do. I stayed the course God gave me. But over time, Ham wormed his way into me in a way I did not even understand then. Deep down, I see now that he became a nagging voice deep in my own heart that wondered about the whole business. In fact, one of those early days, he said to me, Dad, you know it stinks in here, and there's nothing out there. Is this really what God wants? A couple of times I could feel some vague but enormous wave of grief and doubt start to rise up in me. But I knew I couldn't let it, and I stuffed it down. I sealed it in me. But I knew it was there, and so did Ham. I still did my job. But something was off inside of me. Months later, actually more like a year than 40 days and 40 nights, we landed on this completely desolate mountain ridge somewhere in Turkey. There was nothing there but the land and the bones and boards of a ruined earth. After we climbed out, I figured I had to organize something to 
say thanks to God for saving us from the flood and for saving the animals and the plants we brought with us. Before the flood, I remembered that people used to make animal sacrifices to their idols. I figure that's why I had more than just two of, of each of the clean animals on the ark. So I figured I should build an ark, slaughter some of the extra animals, and do a careful set of sacrifices. It seemed like the right thing to do. But in the middle of that, I remember Ham saying to me, Dad, how can you spill all of this blood that we just saved from drowning? I suppose this will remind us that we might be the slaughtered ones too, that we too are flesh and bone, and having been saved from the flood, we shouldn't think that we are no longer vulnerable. But don't you think this might be the wrong way to say thanks? Isn't this the old way back when we had idols? Anyway, when the sacrifices were over, I organized a quiet dinner for my family. We had some wine, and then we all went to bed early. That night in my tent, I had a dream. And in fact, this was the first dream I had had since we launched the ark. And in that dream, I was, as I was at the actual time, in my tent. And in my dream, there was a lot of wine around and food and musicians and dancers and lots of naked young women and all kinds of revelry. I drank a lot. I danced around with young women, I basically behaved like a wild man. And in the midst of that drunk and wild party, dancing around in my tent, in my dream, I remember feeling that this was how some of the religious rites used to be before the flood. And that now I was reenacting a kind of behavior that Somehow I knew the flood was about all about eradicating, and yet there I was in, in a rumpus. It was a hell of a rumpus, and people could hear what was going on. And finally, I got so drunk that I fell down, and I fell asleep. And in that sleep, that drunken sleep inside my dream, I had another dream. And I dreamed that Ham had heard the noise and was in the tent looking at me, sleeping in my drunkenness. And the dream within my dream, I knew exactly what Ham was thinking about. I saw that he was the part of me that doubted God's purpose, that he was smirking as if to say, I told you so, this was all a waste. There you are, flat on your back, naked, dead, drunk, gone to the world. You're the one who should have drowned. You're not the perfect man you think you should have been. You are the man who would not answer your own son's questions. You remained silent. You did your job, and this is what comes of it. And then I awoke in the morning, truly awoke in the morning, from the dream inside my dream and from my dream. 
and I was filled with more anger than I could ever manage in my heart. It swelled up in me, and when I saw Ham, I cursed him at the top of my lungs. I said terrible things to him because he had tried to help me see my doubts and deal with them all along, and I had pushed them down, and now in that drunken state, in the dream, the truth had burst into the open, and I was devastated, and I took it all on him, and I'm still ashamed for those curses, and I can never forgive myself for them. That's all Noah had to say in this story he wrote. For my part, Noah's story reminds me that in being a righteous person, following the path of what we take to be the right way, we cannot fail to acknowledge possible contradictions, to see the darker, more challenging side, to question what we have to do, and to even have contradictions to the contradictions. In fact, that's one of the roles we have that Midrashim play for us. Another way to say this is we must always speak candidly to our children. And in this case, our children are the innocent selves around and inside of us who insist on knowing why. Noah's story implicitly takes Abraham to task for remaining silent to Isaac on the travel and on the altar, and it takes Cain to task for being so insistent on his own offerings and never questioning what the possible motives of God might have been. It takes all of us to task for failing to live in the full complexity of our existence, live in the midst of contradictions without ignoring them. It takes us to task for merely doing our job. Well, there you have it. I want to thank Lorenzo, Diane, and Stephen for being willing to share their amazing talks with all of you. It is a true honor simply to be a part of the process, and we're lucky to have such great people here in our community. But if you're listening and sitting somewhere other than Hyde Park, I encourage you to dive into the text just as our speakers have. Use your heart to trust your intellect, and you'll have the same access to the Torah and tradition as anyone else. I want to thank my co-host and amazing producer, Jonathan Posner. I want to encourage you, if you have any thoughts or ideas for our show, to, to email us or find us on Facebook. And since we just celebrated Thanksgiving, I want to thank you for being our loyal listeners. And until next time, have a wonderful day. Lord, please let me know. Take me to your river.